Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi, and I'm your host. And I want to explain a little bit about the podcast before we start the show this week. This podcast is an opportunity for me to speak with some of the most interesting people I know that I can find on the internet. So either with amazing talents or achievements or just unbelievable life stories or invaluable insights into areas that they have dedicated their lives to studying. I sit down with these amazing individuals from all across the world. Really, I, I've talked to people from Slovenia to the Czech Republic to Australia to countries in Africa and South America, uh, really just all over the world. And I try to ask them the questions that will hopefully help you extract something valuable or learn something new or just get inspired by. And I do hope that you do get inspired by these talks with some sort of a call to action, maybe change something that you wanted to change for a while, or even just enjoy, you know, detaching from the world for an hour and listening to some great conversations. So whatever it is that you get from this, I do hope that you extract something from it and enjoy the conversations. All these episodes are available on all the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and the rest of them. You can also find the episodes on my website, which is RoyBensV.com. You can find a lot of other information about me there as well, from photos to a little bit more insights into who I am, if you're interested. And you know, you can always go to social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me there. I'm pretty active on both those platforms, although the only ones I have, and um, I try to post regularly so you can stay up to date. And also be sure to, you know, put your email on the website. Uh, I shoot emails out with updates, news, any new current information that I have will be sent via those emails and social media platforms. So yeah, make sure you're in the loop. Thanks for tuning in this week. On this week's podcast, we have Melissa Cronin. She is a PhD candidate in the Conservation Action Lab at UC Santa Cruz, and she studies ecology and evolutionary biology. Her research mainly focuses on mapping and mitigating marine fisheries bycatch, uh, mainly looking at manta and devil ray bycatch in industrial fisheries. She is also a writer. You could see her stuff in Gawker, Motherboard, Vice, and many, many other publications. So we had a chat about sustainability. Um, is there a way to be sustainable while eating fish? What are the best methods of sustainability? Talked about bycatch and why it's such a horrific practice and method that a lot of commercial fishing vessels still use, and it's used widely. What bycatch means is for every pound or kilo of fish that is caught, there is five pounds or kilos of bycatch. And that could be anything from dolphins to sharks to turtles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she also discussed with me all these new innovations when it comes to bycatch and how we're reducing it. Super, super interesting. If you guys want to know a little bit more about how to be sustainable with the fish that you eat, we cover all grounds on this topic on this episode. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Here is Melissa Cronin. Enjoy the episode, guys. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Melissa. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, pleased to have you on. Thanks for joining. I've been wanting, I've been actually following you for a very long time. I uh, I only realized this recently, but um, I'm very interested in everything you have to say. Very interested in uh, the articles you put out. So I'm happy to have you on. Great. Oh, thank you. That's really kind of you. <laughs> so how did you get into uh, marine biology and studying fisheries? Or yeah, just give us maybe a little bit of background. Yeah, so I have a bit of an odd background for my field. I uh, started, I got a journalism degree in New York, actually, and I started working for publications. Most of it was covering environmental stuff, um, wildlife trafficking, some fossil fuel development, stuff like that. And I spent a couple years doing that, actually, and it was really rewarding, really interesting, cool kind of stuff, but I felt like I was 
sort of a generalist and not a specialist in anything. You know, I had a lot of broad knowledge, but nothing really deep. Yeah. And it became this kind of, um, you know, I, I was covering conservation and I was just like, you know what? I want to do conservation. I don't want to keep writing obituaries. I want to protect species and systems and uh, human communities too that I care about. So I, you know, on a bit of a whim applied to a graduate program here in Santa Cruz and I was super, super lucky to get in. I mean, I don't know how that happened, but it's gone great since then. And, um, yeah, and now I'm really immersed in this field of sort of fishery, sustainability, conservation, um, manta ray science, all, all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) Cause you, you're originally from uh, Maine, right? You grew up in a fishing town. Yeah, Massachusetts and Maine. I I sort of say Maine because it's really it was really important to me. But I also grew up in Massachusetts in a really small town. But um, yeah, my grandfather built a, a cottage in Maine that we spent a lot of time at um, growing up, and it's on an island that is still a really vibrant, actually, lobster fishery. And anybody who knows lobster fisheries or Maine or that area knows that. Lobster is like incredibly valuable. It's the second most valuable um, commodity in the state or industry in the state rather after tourism. Really? Yeah, it's really valuable. And the reason why it's so it's so valuable, why there's so many lobsters is actually because uh, many decades ago, um, people fished out another fish, the cod. And it was one of the most disastrous fisheries um, incidents, collapses in the history of, you know, the world. Yeah. Well, it's kind of ground zero for fisheries issues. And and so after the cod left, um, lobsters kind of prolifer- proliferated because they didn't have a predator or competitor anymore. So now we have this like amazing fishery that I grew up around. Um, but it's a really interesting history. It's not really straightforward. It's not really, um, you know, a simple story. So that was really influential in uh, thinking about how people relate to natural resources and how, um, you know, history is important when you're thinking about the the industry, the economy, and even like the way people get food yeah. in the ocean. I feel like we do that all the time. We'll take up top predators in all these different uh, ecological areas, right? Like from wolves to sharks we're doing with now, like how important is it to have that top predator in, in each ecological area? Oh, yeah. Super important. Yeah, of course. I mean, anybody, you know, if you see those documentaries about Yellowstone, everyone knows yeah. wolves were really the keystone to keeping the ecosystem going. And it's the same in the ocean. Um, predators like cod or, for instance, sharks, coastal sharks are really, really important to regulation and overall community health of the system. And interestingly, the ocean is one of, well, it's the last place where large-scale hunting still happens. So most of the protein that we get from land systems is farmed, right? But the ocean is still this not domesticated place where we have predators, where we hunt really hard in some cases. And by hunting, I just mean usually fishing. Yeah. Um, and so we're still going after those big predators in the ocean, whereas on land, we've pretty much extirpated most of them, at least on sort of large scales. Yeah, because I mean, it's kind of the Wild West, right? You have the, the, the ocean area where there's not really any monitoring. It doesn't really belong to any one nation. And they're just who are who are maybe the leading countries doing this, or is it just independent contractors or companies? Oh, uh, there's many, many. <laughs> That's a big uh, question. So the the system that I mostly work in is, as you say, it's on the high seas, which is past the 200 uh, mile marker from a country's border. So every country has their own border, their own waters, and then past that is the high seas. Okay. And you're right to say there's like not really. It's a little bit of a wild west out there. There are management bodies that are essentially groups of countries that come together and they try to manage a fishery. So, or even um, sometimes like a resource, maybe drilling or whatever. But um, they are generally thought of as pretty, uh, they're not always doing a great job in a lot of different ways. Um, Whether it's, you know, stuff that I work on, which is accidentally capturing endangered and threatened species whether it's actually managing a fishery the right way, whether it's human labor, human rights, stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of problems out there. Yeah. 
But, uh, and just to, you know, to answer your question, um, the, the countries that are, it depends on the ocean, the countries that are usually managing it, but generally we have what's referred to as like, um, closer states. So states or countries that are fishing nearby their own waters, and then what's called distant water fishing nations. And those are fishing nations that travel like 3000 miles to get to a fishing ground. And that obviously introduces problems where, you know, the fish comes from so far away, it's hard to trace. It's often a really wealthy country coming in. So yeah, it depends where you're looking, but many, many countries fish those waters. Yeah, because I know I had um, uh, Captain Paul Watson from Sea Shepherd on uh, many months ago. Actually, he's a very uh, eccentric and interesting guy, um, and you know he was saying a lot of uh, vessels coming from Japan, coming from the Scandinavian nations, and I mean they do a, a fairly good job by by stopping them. But you know, there's only so much they can do. They have, I think, two, three ships. Not a lot. They have a few, a handful of ships. Um, so there's only so much they can do to, to, to stop these countries. But he did say that Japan and, and the Scandinavian uh, nations are some of the biggest um, culprits when it comes to this, especially with whales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's right to say that those are big fishing nations, but there are other um, there are also other nations, including the U.S., which are taking a lot, a lot of fish and really actively and aggressively fishing. Mm-hmm. Um I think, it's, yeah, I interviewed him once when I was doing journalism. It was really interesting. But I think he's working a lot on um, whaling and, uh, yeah, international whaling, which is a really interesting issue because it's most countries sort of frown on whaling. There's yeah. a moratorium. But um, in my system of tuna, um, high seas tuna fishing, you know, most countries are still aggressively pursuing tuna. Um, for sashimi and sushi, but also for canned tuna. And so like the U S for instance, is a great example where we have a, you know, a big tuna market. And, um, to think that it's only Japan is, is really get letting us get away with something, I think. Um, and a lot of, you know, like us, a lot of developed countries, the European commission, Spain are really big fishing countries, big, big fishing nations, and certainly have a really big role to play in protecting the sustainability of the of the species and and the ones that are accidentally killed in the process yeah i mean is there a sustainable way to to eat fish nowadays i mean we're a growing population we're gonna hit i think 10 billion by 2050 uh developing nations are going to want more protein just like us just like we eat them and there's only so many resources that we can allocate for everyone. And it seems like every time I hear about fisheries, it's like 90% are gone. This is gone. This one's collapsed. And is the sustainable thing just not eating fish? Or is there a sustainable way to, to, to eat fish? So it's a really good question. Um, and it's the one that everybody always wants to know, like, how do I eat sustainably? There's a couple answers to that. Um, I think if you know, there are successfully managed fisheries, particularly, you know, the U.S. is well known for successfully managing its local fisheries. Um, so if you live in a coastal area, the best, best, best way to know that your fish is sustainable is to know who caught it and how it was caught. So if you can go to, you know, a local market that sources local seafood if you can join a community-supported fishery, a CSF, which is sort of a group of fishermen who might sell directly to consumers or through one buyer, that is like the best way to know that not only was it probably sustainably caught because it's local, or at least you can investigate it, but you also know that there's no labor rights violations um, that were that were involved in the creation of your seafood product. Yeah. And you avoid the enormous amount of fossil fuels that are um, released when we do some of this offshore industrial fishing. Um, so people ask me like, how do I know if my tuna is sustainable if, or, or if my seafood is sustainable? If you know where it was caught and it's local to you, that's the best way to approach the problem. There are other things like, um, you know, seafood labels and stuff like that. Those tend to be pretty complicated and variable. So I yeah. often encourage people to just go by the label. Um, there's a lot of problems associated with different labels and with different um fisheries and you not you don't always know what you're getting yeah 
So yeah, it's a long answer to say that um, if you know where the fishery is and that uh, you can trace back less than say four steps between you and the product, that's generally a good a good metric, though obviously hard to do. But should we try to eat less or potentially not eat at all or just manage how much we eat? Uh, I or think- maybe or maybe eat certain fish only. Yeah, yes, definitely. So um, I would say if you're eating, you know, tuna, swordfish every day, that's not a sustainable way to live. Um, If you're eating things, small fishes, um, like anchovy, sardines, sort of oily fishes, mackerel, those are much, the production of those is much, much um, less harmful to the environment. So we're taking out, like you talked about, we're taking out small prey fish rather than big predators, which are important and generally more vulnerable. So People, you know, like there's a whole culture in Spain of eating these small fish. And I, I, yeah. I, I love to see people like being creative about that stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all I would say about that, I guess. Um, and, I, you know, I have really developed a taste for those fish, but it took a little while. You have to like mix them with mayonnaise and stuff, <laughs> but they're really good. And they're an amazing source of protein and generally have way less contamination than something like a tuna, which is super high contamination. Um, well, that, that, that's the other thing. A lot of these fish, uh, I remember, uh, what documentary was this? Potentially, I think it was the Cove where they were in, in, in Japan, right? They were um, fishing these dolphins super high in mercury and they were selling it off as a different fish and but a lot of fish do have you know mercury and they do have uh plastic from plastic pollution because they're just eating all this plastic so it's it's not even that it's as healthy potentially as maybe it was 20 30 years ago right yeah i mean i don't know it would depend on the fish but um you know after the industrial revolution we've been seeing higher and higher levels of contamination and you bring up a good problem, which is mislabeling or misidentification of seafood. You know, just like we want to know where our vegetables come from, what types of pesticides were used with them, or if you do eat meat, where your meat comes from, whether it's been fed grass or not. We want to know what's happened to the product that we put inside our bodies. Yeah. And yeah, the best way to avoid the types of contamination problems, which are really variable and almost impossible to know, like the level of contamination you're getting in your food is to avoid those high, those large um, species, which we call high trophic level species, tuna, swordfish, um, salmon, super high levels of contamination. And, and it's, you know, it's sometimes impossible because of the mislabeling problem. So especially yeah. with white fish, you can not really know what you're getting. You know, it's funny, just here in Santa Cruz, um, we have a program to test the meat that's um, sold in local grocery stores or the seafood that's sold in local grocery stores. Really? It's mislabeled. It's like high schoolers doing this cool work, very simple analysis, but they're awesome. Yeah. Yeah. With a, a colleague of mine who runs it and, you know, they found that there's really high levels of mislabeling, even in a very progressive place like Santa Cruz, we're known yeah. for really good food policy. So I wouldn't ever assume that your seafood is accurately labeled, certainly. So you might not know where you're getting. Yeah. And also, I mean, food labels are just so confusing and so misleading in general. Uh, this is just, this is how they make their money, right? They'll just write a lot of buzzwords like farm fresh. And uh, I don't know, there's a lot of buzzwords that don't really mean anything for the most part. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is why it's so important to, if you're going to eat seafood to know, you know, at least the fishery, if not the person where it came from. And I will say that there is an argument to be made for, you know, really well-managed fisheries, well-managed coastal small-scale fisheries that um, have people, fishermen especially, who um, care for the resource and want to protect it because it's part of their livelihood. So if you can support that with your buying power, then that's a great thing to do. You know, that's a great thing for the, the fishery and for the ecosystem. That being said, all of this is like what the consumer can do, but really a lot of these problems are large scale, um, policy and, um, political problems. And so like, I think the best thing you can do for sustainable seafood is pressure governments to enact better policies, better regulations, and not allow people to overfish or to unsustainably fish in the first place. So how much of a problem is bycatch? I know for 
the stats that I've seen are for every, I believe, kilo of catch, there's five kilos or is it pounds of uh, bycatch, right? So this is everything from uh, manta rays, dolphins, sharks, sea turtles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And is that something that government regulation could change? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. It's a huge problem. Um, it's a problem that is really, um, you know, different depending on the context of the fishery. So the gear makes a difference. What you get with a with a different type of gear, the target species. So whatever you're fishing for, and then the vulnerability of the species that the bycatch species. So. I work on the bycatch of manta rays and devil rays, which are together referred to as mobile rays. And they face a lot of different threats. Um, target fisheries, there's a market for their gills. They are impacted by plastic pollution. But bycatch is particularly pervasive for them because they are enormous. <laughs> when you catch one in a net, it's really difficult to release it quickly. So often they'll bring it on board and the animal will die while on board. Um, they're also really, really slow growing. They have only one pup every couple years. So oh. they're much more like a dolphin than another fish, even though they're technically a fish. Yeah. Um, so they're kind of like a bycatch nightmare <laughs> species where they're just really vulnerable and then they're frequently caught. Um, so they're caught in a lot of different gear. I work on or I study them in this tuna fishery. It's called a persane fishery. And they're captured, they're captured in the thousands every year. Um, and it's a huge problem. So to answer your question, there are things that governments can do. Um, there are multiple things that uh, need to happen for the species. The first, and that's something that we're working on, is just trying to understand the impact and where it's happening uh, most and how that sort of reverberates through the population. So I'm doing this genetic study to try to isolate where, uh, which populations we need to work on first. Then we're working with the fishery to actually try to develop different um, operational ways they can fish to reduce the mortality of the bycatch. So we're trying to see, can they handle them differently to increase the survival after the catch? Or, and probably more importantly, can they actually avoid catch in the first place? Yeah. So that's all the things that we're working on. But then, you know, you're you're right to point out that politically we need political will to make these things happen. And we need those countries at the table in these high seas fisheries bodies to say, look, this is a priority for us. And and we don't want to be involved in sort of like the decline and eventual local extinctions for these species. Are these vessel um, owners or operators cooperative or are they like, oh, you environmentalists, you're trying to get into my bottom line and, you know, screw you, et cetera, et cetera? Or, or do they want to work with you? Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I'm sure they <laughs> that stuff behind closed doors. Um, it's a mixed bag for sure. There are um, certainly we've had great collaborators, especially um, in some work we're doing in Ecuador amazing collaborators from a, a very large fishery who are really interested in reducing the bycatch. And interestingly, some of their motiva motivation from that is to get a sustainability um, certification. So that's a place where those certifications can play a really great role in incentivizing some, um, some research at least. Um, you know, in other cases, it's not always easy to get large scale change at this like enormous, like ocean basin level. Yeah. It's certainly slow going and these bodies are not really known for their, um, you know, speed of action. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been an interesting process. Yeah. I, yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, but, but definitely something that's worth noting is that the tuna industry, like all fisheries are profit industries. So it's not always the case that our incentives are aligned. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, their whole thing is, and I mean, I, I don't know how much I'm sure there's different methods, but I know one of the methods is this massive net that you just cast on the bottom of the ocean and they just literally sweep everything. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if it's, I don't know, fish, bird, whatever's there, it ends up in the net. And, and that's probably one of the biggest, you know, causes of bycatch, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're referring to trawling, which is trawling. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really invasive form of fishing and has not only, you know, habitat problems for, as you say, sort of sweeping the bottom, scraping the bottom, 
Um, it also captures something like sea turtles, mammals, kind of everything in the in its way. It's it's a good example too because in at least in some trawl fisheries, they've had really serious sea turtle bycatch problems, mm-hmm. and they've actually developed this amazing method to release sea turtles from the net. But it's a sort of a, a grid system, and it's become pretty successful in terms of. Uh, reducing sea turtle mortality. So that's actually a great example because it was a huge problem. I mean, it still is a problem for many places and for other species, but at least in say the Gulf of Mexico, they've reduced sea turtle bycatch significantly just by doing this kind of innovation. So it's something we hope to do for manta rays in a similar um, kind of method, but it's, it's only part of the solution, the gear change, because we need you know, political will, like I said, we need, um, in some cases, reduction of effort, of fishing effort. Um, so, yeah. And I think we need like a a group or a body to get behind a certain fish, right? I feel like when people got behind whales, they, you know, it, it made a change when we get behind any animal, doesn't matter if it's sharks or dolphins or polar bears, right? When we make as some sort of a campaign around it, then people start, you know, you change minds and hearts. People don't want to buy that specific fish or they don't want, or they want to ensure that that animal has a good life and is, you know, maintained in in its wilderness. I feel like that's what it's missing. Like it's missing a good PR person (laughs) to kind of push its, uh, its story to the forefront. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it would be cool if people started thinking about, say, something like tuna as, you know, a really incredible predator. Um, you know, we call them, they're sort of like this, like, lion of the ocean because they're a top predator. They're incredibly strong and fast. They even, you know, people think of fish as cold-blooded, but they actually heat their own brains so that they can dive really deep. Yeah, they're, like, pretty hardcore predators. Um, so it would be cool if people start to shift to think about them as, you know, species that deserve to um, be in the ocean and that not just as a resource for us to exploit like oil. Um, and the same thing goes for manta rays, which are, you know, incredibly beautiful, charismatic animals. So it's not always hard to get people on board for them, <laughs> but they're highly threatened. And I think sometimes um, thinking about them as part of the capture of your tuna sandwich is perhaps not a, not a nice image or not something that people want to be a part of. Yeah. What um what kind of led you down the road to get interested in in manta rays? Because you you specifically focus on on manta rays, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so my lab here at UC Santa Cruz, the Conservation Action Lab, yeah. has been doing research on a species of devil ray, which are very closely related, for gosh now like fifteen years. Um, they have a really wonderful research program going on in in, uh, in Mexico. And that species is, is really amazing, really interesting. It's the, um, it does these really beautiful jumps out of the, out of the water that we haven't seen. It's a, it's a great uh, Google. <laughs> um, and so they were thinking about, you know, this is a sort of coastal population, but of course there's a connection between this high seas fishery and then the local populations. And so there was sort of an opportunity to work at this um, tuna level and having that experience, you know, growing up in, in Maine and really seeing fishery sustainability and all of the kind of political, economic, social, and then of course, biological stuff that goes into it. I was like, yes, sign me up. Um, so it just sort of fell into place. And then we've since expanded it to kind of cover a more, um, a greater breadth. So we have the genetics project, we have a sort of a review paper, we've got a policy piece. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty interdisciplinary. I like my journalism. I'm still a broad scientist, <laughs> um, but that's okay. <laughs> do you do you enjoy, or maybe how is your work split up? Is it like 50-50 in the field and then in the lab or 80-20? And which one do you, do you kind of enjoy more? Do you enjoy coming back and testing the results and seeing, you know, the hypothesis come to life? Or do you enjoy being on the field in the ocean, the wind in your hair? <laughs> <laughs> what a what an easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the field is totally spectacular. And especially one of the coolest things has been to see the way fishermen relate to the issue and to trying to help solve it. That has been really cool. 
especially in a little bit of work that I've just been, you know, there for um, in Baja, where the fishermen are incredibly invested in sustainability. And in fact, uh, like leading conservation efforts, which has been super, super cool. Um, and then working with this large scale fishery has also been really interesting. I, because of the nature of the vessels where they go out for months at a time, I'm not doing the, the physical sample collection. So I train observers, um, who go on the vessels to do that, um, for, you know, time restraints and other considerations. Yeah. So (laughs) it's less like romantic. And then we do a lot of lab work, a lot of like pipetting until your brain explodes, um, which is interesting. It's certainly a good skill, but perhaps not the most, you know, yeah, not the not the movie version of my research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not Indiana Jones out there no. trying to collect samples. No, God, no, though I do have a tie dye lab coat. Okay, Santa Cruz. And- yeah. <laughs> so this is this is my uh idea tell me how ridiculous it it is right when in covid now right we saw in india we saw i think in 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 la and in china and a lot of other places carbon emissions went down drastically right everyone was home you know uh air travel banned and um people not driving as much so less consumption all of a sudden, people were like, oh, I can see mountains. I can see the sky. There's not as much air pollution. Could we do something similar as far as some sort of a moratorium to maybe six months out of the year or three months or whatever it is, people don't eat fish yeah. right? or, or don't eat a certain type of fish or don't, you know, like just yeah. limit what people can eat. I know like you're, you're, it's impossible to tell people what to do and what not to do. I understand that everyone should be able to do what they want. But if it's, you know, the future of fish, the future of the oceans, could we see some, A, could we see some something like that being implemented? B, would that even help? Well, certainly reducing, you know, global demand for, especially for some of these uh, large predatory species would be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. And I, I think the idea to, you know, limit demand to impact supply is a really good one. Um, in terms of feasibility, it might be <laughs> difficult, but you know, crazier things have happened. Yeah. And, you know, there are big efforts now to put in marine protected areas where fishing is either not allowed or highly regulated um, or do seasonal closures, which is kind of what you're talking about, where seasonally, when we know, say there's a manta ray aggregation in this area, we don't fish there because we know the risk is too high. So that's sort of being done in this like more supply side of things. Um, And I think it's really probably super, the most promising thing we have is to avoid the bycatch in the first place. Um, Yeah, I haven't heard, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a demand moratorium. But again, it goes back to this point about like the role of consumers. And I think consumers do have a really important role to play. Yeah. But at, at the same time, it's like if you or I don't eat seafood for a day, um, it doesn't really change the fact that they're going out fishing. And and it's a great example in COVID because, interestingly, a lot of, at least in the beginning, a lot of small-scale fishers um, weren't going out, weren't selling catch. But industrial fisheries were. And there, really? as far as I know, there wasn't a huge decline in the amount of effort from industrial fisheries. And in fact there were a lot of fisheries where they weren't sending out observers who are data collectors, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, so it's almost, it was almost worse where they're going out fishing and potentially have less oversight. Um, the lawlessness increased. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's not what we want, especially if, you know, data is already a problem in this field. So having sort of even more wild west is not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I did, I figured it, my idea wouldn't work, but I think maybe it will work. Maybe maybe in the east, because you know, even like if you look at um, Taiwan, right? I think they have like twenty four, twenty five million people, five hundred and eighty five cases of COVID and seven deaths. Right? Wow. Com- compare that to New York. I mean, it's not even it's not it's incomparable, right? I think they just listen to government. And even you know, I was in Japan earlier this year. Everyone was wearing masks, literally everyone. And I don't know, I, I, maybe this is just custom and this is the culture there. And they, they were already doing it uh, 
you know, pre-COVID, but everyone was. And this was just right in the beginning where a few people from China were coming into Japan. So I don't know if, you know, they were scared and they were wearing, but it just seems like they just, they're more compatible with change and they tend to listen to government. Where here, I think in the West, we're very anti-government. We don't want government butting in and telling us what to do and, you know, give us our freedom and liberty. So, yeah. And it's funny, you know, culture is actually really important for seafood consumption too. And for like all these sustainability issues, like a great example, I'm Irish Catholic from the Northeast, right? And there was, after the um, Catholic church in like recommended that Catholics have fish on Fridays, no meat on Fridays. Oh yeah. There was a huge spike in seafood consumption after that. I can't forget the year. I think it was back in the forties or fifties or something. Yeah. And, you know, that led to people seeing fish more frequently and saying, oh, this is actually pretty good and eating more fish. And then a, a subsequent increase in demand. Really? For those products. Yeah. So, you know, these things that we think are not related, social, religious, cultural norms actually do impact the type of fish we want to eat. You know, especially in the U.S., we eat a lot of the same type of fish over and over, where a lot of other cultures will make take advantage of things that for us seem more gross. Um, gooey yeah. duck is a great example. Yeah. <laughs> um, not a lot of people eat that, but it's actually no. a sustainable seafood product. Um, so yeah, I think culture is actually so important in terms of thinking about conservation and seafood demand and supply. Yeah. Do you think, um, and I, I don't know how closely uh, you potentially follow this, but do you think that maybe plant-based uh, alternatives and or um, lab grown, now they have lab grown meat, but I'm sure at some point they'll have lab grown fish as well. Are, are those alternatives that could be, you know, viable options? Yeah. Oh gosh, certainly. And especially if it's, um, replacing something like a high, a, a predatory fish, like a tuna, yeah. or certainly replacing a factory farmed animal, which we know are one of the highest contributors to greenhouse gas, fossil fuel emissions and climate change. My God. Yeah, absolutely. I think if, um, if we can have something that's not that and reduce demand for, especially for factory farm meat or for industrially caught seafood, then that's great to me. And, you know, I have, my dad is a real meat eater and I gave him beyond burger. I think it was, or impossible burger. And he was like, wow, this is is delicious. Yeah, I think like they're getting really great. You know, there's always like trade-offs with those things where the introduction of one thing has XYZ um, drawbacks. But it sounds like, at least from what I've seen, that those are really promising alternatives. And maybe, you know, we can shift more more deeply to those. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, you know, there's it's never going to be zero. It's never going to be perfect. It's just, can we do better than what we're already doing? And they're honestly, I think like, and it goes back to what you said earlier, culture. I think once we have the uh, the lab grown meats, that's going to be a little bit of a cultural switch that people are going to have to, I, I don't know if I can eat something grown in a lab. You're like, I prefer, you know, I think it's more organic or more whatever, you know, the, the slaughtered animal. So that's a mentality a culture shift that's going to have to happen as well. I think it can happen fairly quickly if all the tests are shown that it's just as healthy and better for the environment. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I, I think we can yeah. get there. Yeah, I would try it. And, <laughs> you know, it's another reminder of like, there's these bottom up and these top down forces. Like a good example is subsidies. So like we highly subsidize industrial fishing and often farming practices. And, you know, consumers can be the ones that sort of say, oh, look, we want this product instead of this product that we don't like the way it's made or the what its impact is and then governments should respond and reduce these harmful subsidies that in at least in the fishing sector are out of this world i mean mind-boggling and contribute to this constant um over exploitation of the ocean so i think if those two things sort of meet in the middle then that's where you get real and lasting change did you see the octopus documentary no, I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? 
I'm so behind on my my movies. Yeah, <laughs> you're behind on your Netflix documentary. <laughs> um, it was a pretty cool documentary. You know, I I the thing that I took away from it was that a the octopus octopi. I think Coral? octopuses actually octopuses. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then yeah, they are unbelievably complex creatures, and that kind of got me thinking how many other creatures are there in the ocean, fish, mammals, etc., that are just so complex and we just have no understanding of them because they're underwater and we're above water. Right. And the other thing was that he kept going to this kelp farm uh, to find this octopus. And the funny part is, was, and this is in uh, off the coast of, um, I think it was Cape Town in South Africa or maybe in, somewhere in that area. Um, the kelp farm, the water was always crystal clear, like super clear, but everything around it was kind of murky. And I was wondering if if the kelp was well, was actually kind of cleaning the the water. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know specifically about kelp farming, but there's a lot of promising research around um, well kelp and then also like bivalves, like clams and oysters, and about greater um, sorry greater. Uh, you know, water quality nearby. But I, I mean, just to comment on your example of the octopus, that's so right. There's such a terrestrial bias in the way we think about, you know, intellectually and emotionally about animals that live in the ocean or in even in freshwater. So manta rays, uh, my species (laughs) that I study are a great example where they're fish. Yes. So people have a hard time relating sometimes, but yeah. they have the largest brain to body ratio of any fish, meaning that for the size of their body, their brain is enormous. Yeah. And they have these super complex social relationships, complex mating and courtships, these beautiful dances that they do and sort of chasing that they do um, to attract a mate or say, look, I'm like the strongest guy in the group. Um, so they're really complex, and I don't think that we fully understand the real depth of their cognitive ability, and and they're hard to study. So I mean, it makes sense that we don't understand it, but it doesn't mean that we should assume that the default is that they're not intelligent or they're not capable of social interaction. I no, they're yeah, they're super smart. Um, it's unbelievable, and and again, like I, I just. The way he did it was so amazing because he just got so much footage. And I guess he went there every day for like a year, I believe it was, and interacted with this octopus. And he got so much amazing foot. And you could really see the trust that he built over time. And that's, you know, we, the only animal we really interact with is a dog or a cat, right? Otherwise, like we don't really interact with dog with uh, animals on a regular basis. So we just assume all these things about them. Right. But I think, you know, scientists like yourself and, and others and, and maybe people like David Attenborough and, and Nat Geo photographers and when they document them and they spend a long time with certain types of animals you really see that, oh, okay, they're actually much, much more complex, much, much smarter and have these social webs and connections that we just had no clue about. Yeah. And and doesn't it make it easier to, you know, not care about that animal or, or that system when you're so divorced from it? So like in food production, a lot of times people have no idea where their meat, where their, even where their plants or where their fish comes from. And that's part of the problem. You know, we, we don't see these places. We don't see the destruction that it causes. And so it becomes really easy to eat, say, Nutella, which we know is associated with horrific oil, uh, oil palm plantations and the destruction of habitat for orangutans and other like amazingly endangered and beautiful and interesting species. And, um, you know, I think that the way that we're so disconnected from our food production is a huge part of the problem. It's really easy to ignore if you don't see it. Yeah. Do you think that we potentially um, judge which animals to save based on, on maybe cuteness rather than necessarily ecological importance? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of research to support that. Even really, yeah. Even the amount of, you know, conservation dollars that are spent the uh, research that's done. So like manta rays and devil rays are two different species groups. 
way more research is done on manta rays because they're larger and like people love that. I mean, they're incredible. And so I get it, you know, it makes sense that if something is like a panda, everybody wants to keep it. That's that, that totally uh, is natural to me, but um, it doesn't mean that the other species that we ignore are less valuable to the ecosystem. So there's a cool um, field of conservation sort of triage where they're trying to identify species who are, um, you know, ecosystem-wide valuable, um, maybe ecologically valuable, maybe economically valuable for, say, something like tourism, yeah. and um, use different metrics besides just, like, how cute they are to prioritize them for conservation. And, you know, I can't say too much because I study a charismatic species, okay. and I get a lot of back for that. <laughs> <laughs> the scientific world but um, yeah. yeah it's it's totally a pervasive problem <laughs> yeah i mean we love it we love a good teddy bear yeah totally yeah. <laughs> i actually had one in my uh backyard uh, about a month ago uh a cute big fluffy black bear kind of tapped on my window and um they're they're big they're big boys yeah 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 <laughs> but I'm sure you know that really is a cool experience to have. And oh, it's amazing. Think more about oh well, we should make sure that this you know park is established or protected because I like having him there. I like seeing him, but we never think the same about you know I don't know tuna or something because oh. we never see it. So there, yeah, there's a. It's hopefully a good reminder to. Um, you know, keep making creative work like podcasts or films that allow people to experience these um, amazing animals and and feel more connected to them. What? Because um, 2020 has been, you know, as everybody knows, pretty crappy year. Um, <laughs> what What are you most hopeful about in in your field? Where are you seeing kind of real strides? Yeah, I um, well. Gosh, that's a hard question. <laughs> Give I, us some hope, Melissa. Come I, on. I do have hope. I mean, I wouldn't be in this field in conservation if I didn't think that things would change. That yeah. would be pointless. Um, <laughs> and I have hope about um, people, at least in some countries, really demanding better from their food production systems. So people saying, oh, you know what? I don't want dolphins to die in the production of my seafood or manta rays. Or for that matter, I don't want to support factory farming, which we know is terrible for animals, for the environment, and for the people who work in it. And so I, I see these pushes. You know, there's a push against um, seafood slavery. There's a push against terrible conditions at factory farms and then all the environmental consequences of the both of these yeah and see people getting sort of enraged about these things and and that's really that's really exciting and hopeful because i think that we should be enraged about them and i think that uh you know in the past these big movements have really resulted in great change for the environment you know rachel carson's ddt um uh, book silent spring that was huge and led to the creation of, you know, serious legislation. So I think that um, with enough pressure and enough people banging on the door, things do happen. And and it's not though it's not that they're always going to just lie down and say, "Sure, I'll change my business model for you." Um, sometimes it really needs to be real aggressive pressure. Yeah, I have hope. I do have hope. <laughs> I maybe a slow process. <laughs> No, we need we need hope. Uh, I think more than ever, 2020 showed us how important uh, having hope is, because otherwise, um, yeah, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, and the year is the majority over. So. Yeah, I just hope you know it just doesn't extend into 2021, and then it's just it's it's a 2020 extension. I just um you know I'm I'm hoping. Not that I think this is what's going to happen, but I'm just hoping that you know 2021 is just fresh just new start but yeah and sometimes you know i do think this is an interesting moment in history i mean terrible terrible one terrible one for so many people but it's an interesting reset i mean sometimes a shock to the system can be sort of a, a clarifying moment when you say oh what are the things that i do need i do need human connection i do need community i do need 
um, my work to make me happy. And I think sometimes maybe a shock can be good for uh, systems, you know, although it's certainly a painful one. It is. And that's, that's a, that's um, a really important point that you um, brought up. As far as human connection, I think that's one of the biggest things. All these lockdowns, all these quarantines, all you're not being, you know, scared to see your parents or your grandparents or even friends. That's something I think that a lot of people will really appreciate now that they can't hug people, that they can't be close to their relatives, to their loved ones. Um, that's a biggie. That's a real big um, point that I don't think we ever thought about. Oh, what? I'm not going to be able to see my parents. Like in what world does that exist? But it exists now. Yeah, right. Totally. I know. I really miss my family. But again, it's like, yeah, I mean, even sharing food, you know, I think a lot about like food and we can't share food anymore and what an important cultural thing that is. But I'll say that the the way that we've seen some, like you mentioned before, environmental metrics sort of improve in terms of quality or health, that to me is super hopeful. If we're talking about hope, you know, it's, such a sign that, okay, things can change if we have political will and enough power. Yeah. Um, things can get better quickly, way quicker than I could have imagined. So I, I know you have a hard stop. So I'll just ask you the final question. Uh, and this I saw on your website. So I had to ask this. What did you learn from watching 540 hours of Survivor <laughs> and why? <laughs> Yikes. Uh, yeah, I was a real big Survivor fan for a long time. <laughs> um, I, yeah, like that story says, I maintain my position that um, environmental education and and communication about endangered species does not need to be boring. It does not need to be in a documentary, even that doc- if that documentary is amazing. You know, we can get this content into uh, non-traditional methods, which I think Survivor is one. <laughs> having watched more than 500 episodes, I know that there are endangered species. There are species that I never have seen on a documentary. Um, I, I think that the depth of, um, you know, species they show is really actually pretty impressive and that they should be awarded for that, though, you know, there are problems with Survivor. I'm the first <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I've never I've never watched it. I, I, I but you know I I might check out an episode now that you say now that you mention it. I just yeah, might conservation eye. If yeah. Else. And yeah, I think we need to think creatively about the way we communicate to people, and that's a good example. I think as any, like it doesn't all have to be in a textbook. And sometimes the way to get people on board is through a reality show. <laughs> yeah, I guess whatever gets the whatever gets eyeballs, right? Exactly. Yeah, in a in a constructive way, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, Melissa, thank you so much. Uh, I had a blast, really. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, uh, where having me. Where can people find you on the internet? Where's the best places? Yeah, they can check out my website, which is melcronin.com, C-R-O-N-I-N. And then my Twitter is at Melissa underscore Cronin. And I'm often tweeting about, uh, you know, whatever is enraging me that day and or manta ray photos. So hopefully you can come for one or the other. <laughs> uh, yeah, guys, make sure to check her out. Melissa's awesome. So give her a follow. And uh, yeah, thanks again. I really, I really had a blast. Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs>